We'll be in Psalm 94, Psalm 94 tonight. Once we're there, we'll pray, read the psalm together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its effectiveness. And we thank you for how relevant and applicable it is to the time in which we live. Um, That your truth is eternal. You are unchanging. And the truths that comforted the psalmist so many years ago comfort us today as well. Pray that we would be changed by your truth tonight and that we would know you more. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 94, read along with me. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of peoples. Fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his heritage, he will not abandon his heritage, for justice will return to the righteous, and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought, my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold, and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. What did you notice? We read through that psalm together. Anything that stuck out to you? Things that you observe, you want to share before we jump in. It does. And as I prayed today, I thank the Lord for the fact how applicable to the time in which we live is. And that definitely is true of this psalm. Anything else? Let me ask you a question. Is it appropriate... To pray for God to bring justice on the wicked. Yes. Yes. Well, are we supposed to pray for God to bring mercy and forgiveness? Yeah. The key word is justice. Justice. 
Justice. Keyword. Okay. All right. His justice and not ours. That's a very important clarification to make. Vengeance is his, absolutely. Perhaps that verse even came to your mind when we read those opening verses. Both justice and mercy are attributes of God, aren't they? He is the God of justice. He is the God of mercy. Since both are part of his character, it's appropriate to pray for not only mercy, but for justice. In our prayers, when we pray for God to execute justice on wickedness, what are we doing? We're simply saying, God, act in accordance with your character. You are a God of justice. And as we see in this psalm, there's injustice that is really bothering the psalmist. And when he sees injustice, what is his heart's cry? Lord, God of vengeance, rise up. Don't think that it's unspiritual and unloving to pray for God to execute justice for those who have been victimized and toward those who are committing evil against others. Obviously, we pray for God's mercy, right? God is a God of mercy, God of love. He's also a God of justice. I think psalms like this point to the fact that when we see evil reign in this world, it should bother us. It should cause us to cry out to the God of justice, to act in accordance with his character. The, so, the structure for this psalm, three, three parts, three main divisions that I see. First division would be uh, verses 1 through 7. 1 through 7, as the psalmist crying out for God's justice toward the wicked. This is his petition. This is his complaint. This is his cry. And then verses 8 through 15, it's the tone of confidence. And he actually warns the wicked and shows confidence toward God's justice. Although it seems like there is injustice, he is confident in God's justice. And then verses 16 through the end of the psalm, the psalmist praises God for his presence and protection of him. It becomes very personal as he considers how God is involved in his own life. So those are the three main divisions of this psalm. And uh, let's see how many psalms are in, how many verses are in here. Make sure I get the right number here. 23. There we go. Put the right number up here. Let's look at this opening, these opening verses here. What main attribute of God do we see? Vengeance, right? Vengeance. He's the judge. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. God is a God of vengeance, just as much as He is a God of mercy and a God of love. This is an attribute of God that we should praise God for. God is a God of justice, a God of vengeance. And why is it such a comfort that God is a God of vengeance Injustice. Yes? Because at the same time, you're really hoping for mercy to those where evil people are, are being evil or Right. Uh, so, and it's good we have him to do it and not take it ourselves. Mm-hmm. What happens when we try to take it into our own hands? 
we go too far. Yeah, yeah. We try, we try to one-up what the wrong, right? Okay. Why else would it be a comfort that God is a God of vengeance and justice? Yes, Ashley. Um, that God is fair and yeah. He is not going to. He's going to defend His people mm-hmm. no matter what. Absolutely. Yeah, he's fair. He's going to defend his people. Um, he's got a justice plan. Yeah, it says how long? Because you see the wickedness going on over and over, just every day on the news yeah. or whatever, and you just say, hey. Yeah, and you see that that prayer in, in, in verse in verses three, verse three. How long shall the wicked exalt? Right, that's that boastful arrogance. How long is this going to take place? God is a God of vengeance and justice. We can pray for God's justice, trusting Him to do what is right. As we mentioned, often one, one verse that came to our mind for many of you is Romans 12, where it talks about vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32:35, where God says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, and for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. The Apostle Paul applies this in Romans chapter 12, 19-21, where he exhorts Christians, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, and be overcome, but overcome evil with good. Now, I ask the question, why is it a comfort that God is a God of vengeance and justice? How does Romans 12 answer that? Why is God being a God of vengeance a comfort to us based on Romans 12? We can't be. We don't have to do it. We don't have to do it. That's not our job, is it? He says, never avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath. Why? Because God said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay. Why is revenge a sin? Because we do it. That's exactly right. It's a selfish motive, right? So, number one, because we do it, not God. And number two, because we're really bad at doing it, and we're really sinful at doing it, right? And so, when you look at Romans 12, what do you see? Knowing that God is a God of vengeance, what does it actually allow you to do? It actually allows you to freely love your enemies. Isn't that interesting? Don't avenge yourself, leave it to God, and when you trust God's justice, it allows you to freely love even your enemy. And not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Taking vengeance is a sin because it's God's job. So do you think that his attitude is probably there when he says, Oh Lord, how long? Because literally he's loving his enemy. Mm-hmm. Like saying, Come on, Lord, stop it. <laughs> no, I don't think his enemy I don't think his attitude is wrong. I think he is, he is frustrated with the sinful acts of the wicked. And um, when that's prolonged, it should bother us. Um, there's other psalms where he says something similar. And then also, exp- I'm, I'm trying to remember the exact psalm, I can't place the number. Where he says, I actually, you know, I, I showed love to this enemy. I, I reached out to him and, 
and, and yet they're still sinning. And so I, I, I believe this is an appropriate thing to pray for. How long will it last? God execute justice and judgment? Um, so ju- vengeance belongs to God. I think it's also important to note, vengeance belongs to God and also to those whom God delegates vengeance. Do you know that God delegates vengeance? Who does God delegate vengeance to? The government, govern, the governing officials. Romans 13.4 For he, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on evildoers. So, sometimes God delegates his vengeance to human government. When I'm wronged, I can either, number one, take vengeance into my own hand, or two, entrust vengeance to God and to the authorities, if that's applicable, which frees you to love your enemies and overcome evil with good. So the psalm begins with, God of vengeance, rise up, shine forth. How long will wicked go unchecked? Verse 4, we see, what are they doing? They're pouring out... They're arrogant words. You could also describe this as gush forth. Just an overflow of arrogance. They're boasting. What do you think is causing this arrogance and boasting? No repercussions. No repercussions. That's exactly right. No accountability and no repercussions. So they are, ex- they are acting wickedly. They are, they are persecuting others. They're oppressing others. And there's no accountability, no repercussions for their actions. And that increases their boastfulness, their arrogance. And that's why the psalmist is saying, how much longer? I can't just sit back and watch this. How much longer? Verse 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Now, why should that be troubling? That it's the Israeli people are God's people. Yeah. And what you're telling us there, they are destroying the even though to know why he is allowing this to happen. Exactly. So this is God's people, right? And he's saying, God, they're, they're, they're crushing us. They're crushing your people. You know, the people that you rescued from Egypt, the people that you've, that you've led through the wilderness, the people that you have given a land to, they're crushing them. They're afflicting them. Look in verse 6. They kill three different groups of people. The widow, the sojourner, the fatherless. Why highlight these three groups of people? Defenseless. Defenseless, vulnerable people. The widow, the sojourner. The sojourner would be, oftentimes is described as a refugee of war. Um, Isaiah 16.4 says, Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased, he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. That the sojourner was often, it could have been a refugee, a pilgrim, a someone who is not a native Israelite who is, who is taking refuge in their land. So the widow, the sojourner, and the fatherless. Why does he highlight these two, three groups of people? Other than the fact that they're vulnerable. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. There's a very specific reason why the psalmist highlights these three groups of people. 
Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest, this is a command, a part of the law to Israel, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for who? The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for who? The sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Skip ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Verse 12 through 13. When you finish paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled, that you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. According to all your commandment that you have given me, I have not transgressed against any of them, nor have I forgotten them. Skip ahead to Deuteronomy 27, verse 19. This one's one's an important one. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. A couple other passages, you don't have to turn there, but from the Psalms. Psalm 68 God is described as this Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Another psalm, Psalm 146, verse 9 The Lord watches over the sojourners, he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Now, after reading all that, why is verse 6 troubling? It goes against God's law. What's that? It goes against God's law, God's commandment to take care of these people. Okay. Not only a commandment for the people to take care of these three groups, but what else was described? God takes care of these three groups. He is the protector of the fatherless. He's, he's watching over the sojourners. He's upholding the widow and the fatherless. Here's the problem. They're killing those whom God promised to protect. Who's they? The wicked. Okay. Who? We don't know. <laughs> it depends on the, the circumstance, right? It, it could be an you know, invading army. It could have been uh, a wicked ruler. In fact, down, later on in the psalm, there's some indications that whoever these are are wicked rulers. Um, that are oppressing and, and using their power to, to, um, to attack these, these vulnerable people. Um, so that would probably be the, uh, the clearest example here. Yes, sir? Also, don't those three groups look like three of the more defenseless people in our society? Mm-hmm. So God is stepping in on their behalf. Yes, yeah. They're the three most defenseless groups, especially in their context, right? A widow... You know, you didn't have all the system, the government programs and things like that to assist, right? They were, they were helpless. They were without protection. And so, and so these were particularly vulnerable people. And then verse 7, what are these wicked people saying? He doesn't see. God doesn't see. God doesn't perceive. Notice what names of God 
they incorporate. Yahweh, the Lord, and the God of Jacob. So why is that a particularly stinging insult? The covenant. Right? God, Jacob's God does not perceive the oppression of Jacob. Alright? So, can you see why the psalmist is bothered? There is prolonged wickedness and oppression. God's people are being crushed. The most vulnerable that God promised to protect and that the people were commanded to protect are being killed. And on top of that, the wicked are saying, God doesn't see, God doesn't care. That's why they're so proud and boastful. is because they, they think they're escaping accountability. Right? They're like, there's, there's no accountability for my actions. Now, this is pretty bleak. Look how it turns in verse 8. Who are these dullest of people? Who are the fools? The wicked. These people that are crushing his heritage, afflicting his people, it's the wicked. And now the psalmist turns the tables on these, on these men, calls them the dullest of people. This literally means stupid, okay? Stupid people, fools, when will you be wise? This first word here, understand, comes from the exact same Hebrew word that we see here. So, what were the wicked saying? God does not perceive. And then verse 8, he's saying, you know who's blind? You know who needs to see clearly? It's you, dullest of people. It's you, fools. When will you wise up? They're the blind ones. This reminds me of Psalm 53.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are all corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. I think the point here in this verse, one of the most foolish and stupid things you can do is live like there is no God. That's foolish. That's what these men are doing. They're building up their own little kingdoms and crushing whoever's in their way. They're, they're arrogant. They're proud. They're like, we got this. And we're getting away with it. And God is not mocked. And this psalmist, in faith, because remember, what he's seeing is really troubling. And yet, because he has faith in who God is and that he knows he's a God of vengeance, he says, I know, I know that it is them who are the foolish ones. That they're the ones who are blind. Not God. God's not blind. It's these people who think that they can live like God doesn't exist. I love verses 9, 10, and 11. It's almost like he gives the most simplistic, easy argument. Because remember, he's talking to stupid people, right? (laughs) So, he's like, okay, listen, all you dullest of people. He who planted the ear. If, If God can make you hear, don't you think he's able to hear himself? If God formed your eye, if he made you see, don't you think he knows how to see? If God disciplines the nations, 
don't you think he can punish you? If God is the one who gives knowledge, don't you think he knows what you're doing? God sees, God hears, he sees, he knows, he punishes. And this is the act of faith of the psalmist. Even when this wickedness is going rampant, he looks at these wicked people and says, you are the ones who are dull. You are the ones who are acting foolish. I want to think for a moment, anecdotally, the story of the Israelites in Egypt. When they were slaves. Oppressed, trampled, killed. And yet they... they, they, they they wonder, where is God, right? Where is the God of justice? God, deliver us. Yet when you zoom out and you consider God's grand plan, which we talked a lot about in these Psalms, the grand plan of God, when, when you zoom out and see the whole picture. Way back in Genesis 15, before the Israelites ever began as a people, Before Israelites were ever sent into Egypt, God told Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So when the Israelites were in Egypt, do you think they were crying out, God of vengeance, where are you? How long? They're crushing your people. And yet before they even got there, what did God say? They will be afflicted. And in the fourth generation, once the sin of the Amorites and the Canaan land are, are complete, I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to deliver them. And then when you turn to Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 through 25, we read this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God is faithful. God sees, God knows, he hears, and he punishes. And this is how he responds in faith. God knows that the thoughts of man are but a breath. The intentions, that's what this word means, the intentions of man. They're vanity, they're futile. It is only his plans that are reliable. And so even in, even in this dire circumstance that we see, this psalmist looks at those wicked people and say, you better shape up soon, because God sees and he hears and he knows. Questions, comments before we move forward? Exodus 2, 23 through 25. So, it always struck out to me one of the things we studied when we studied my 
prophets were talking about how God raised up nations to judge his nation. And I don't know what time this is written. I don't even know who wrote it, yeah. per se. But you know, it just echoes again, you know, I, especially when we were talking about the Lord rose up the Chaldeans and the holy nation mm-hmm. to judge his nation. Right. And you see that happening. And he still is the God of righteousness. Yeah. He seem very righteous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, a lot of tie-ins. And in fact, what you mentioned about how God raises up nations to, to act as discipline toward his people, you wonder if that's even what you see right here. Right. Yeah. Because there's this oppression. But then he, he, he shifts the focus. He contrasts the warning with the blessing. And while he's warning up here the wicked, he says here, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and who in whom you teach out of your law to give him rest from the day of trouble until the pit is dug for the wicked. So he's saying this in the context before the wicked are judged, before that pit is dug. He says, blessed is the man who is disciplined by you. Perhaps it was a warring nation executing discipline by God on them. This divine perspective, really, on the current injustice. God is disciplining, which results in what? A greater knowledge of who He is through the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Then later on, or earlier, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. So you start to see the shift in perspective in the psalmist from it's, it's, it's all injustice to God is in control. He sees, knows, and hears. So what's my responsibility as his child? It is, it is to receive the discipline of the Lord and be taught by his word. And what is the result of being taught his word? You see it? Rest. Two, there's a purpose word right there. Give him rest. Is this rest after the wicked are punished? It's not. How do we know that? Until a pit is dug for the wicked. So what does a knowledge of God in trial produce? Knowledge of God gives you internal peace and rest while you wait for the justice of God. In verses 14 and 15 show how a confidence in God's faithfulness produces internal peace. Look at the look at the confidence. God will not forsake. He will not abandon. Justice will return to the righteous. All in the up, all the upright in heart will follow it. This is faith. At a time when it feels like God had abandoned them, they turned and looked, changed their perspective and knew that through the knowledge of Scripture, 
there is an assurance that God has not, is not done, but is disciplining and teaching His people until the time He executes judgment, which will most certainly happen. His justice is sure. Whether in this life or the next, God is a God of justice. And so He shows us how can we have rest in the midst of great injustice. God gives present help in that. And we see this even continued in verse 16. These are like my, one of my, some of my favorite verses. He starts off with this question. Who will rise up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? We see this rise up language that we saw earlier in verse 1. Rise up, O God of vengeance. And then verse six, 17, we see this testimony If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would have lived in the land of silence. What's the land of silence? What's that describing? Sorry? Death, Sheol, yes. I would have died if it wasn't for God. If God had not been my help. So here's the implied answer to his question in verse 16. And is this present, future, or past tense? Past tense. So it's a testimony. Lord had been my help. And then verse 18 and 19 describe the situation that the psalmist found himself in. And if you're going to take away a couple verses from the psalm, take these ones. What was the psalmist going through? First of all, I want to notice this. Both verses begin with when, not if. So this happens. When I thought... My foot slips. Describe that feeling. What's he saying? He had doubts. He had doubts. Okay. Out of control. Out of control. What else? Defeated. Defeated. Messed up. Messed up. Have you ever been hiking or climbing and you step on that slippery rock? What does your whole body do? <laughs> right? Just, just every part of your body just tenses up. It's like this, this jolt of panic, right? My foot slips. Whoa, right? Can you see what's going on in his soul and in his mind? Rebecca? So, interesting again, as in one of our previous songs, but um, the New King James, and I'm assuming the King James also, does not have it as if it has happened. It says, if I say my foot slips, your mercy, the Lord, will hold me up. Okay. As in, like, in the future tense. Sure. I think, I think the past tense is probably better in this, in this situation due to its connection with verse 17, that it had been, God had been his help. Uh, again, tense is really hard to determine in Hebrew. Um, so I think given the, the flow of the passage, past tense uh, seems to be better. Um, Either way, it's, there's a confidence, right? Whether that's from past experience or, or future confidence. So, I mean, let's think of some words here that describe what he's feeling. Um, uncertainty. You can shout him out if you have another one. Panic. Despair. Despair. Confusion. Confusion. Guilt. Guilt. Instability. Possibly. All right, so there's one thing he's going through. 
Again, just think of that image of, of stepping on that slippery rock and, and, and your whole self is just, you're unstable, you're panicking. Alright, verse 19, when the cares of my heart are many. Let me tell you something interesting about this word right here. This is a really tame translation. This is what, it, this is what it's communicating. Disturbing thoughts. Or disquieting thoughts. Thoughts that really trouble you. Have you ever had thoughts invade your mind that scare you a little bit? That disquiet you? That disturb you? And, and is this just one thought? Two thoughts? Many the disturbing thoughts in my mind are many. They're swirling around. Psalm 139, verse 13, is one of the only other parts, uh, verses in the psalm that use the same word for cares, where it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That word thoughts is that same word, meaning disturbing, disquieting thoughts. But sometimes you, you have these disturbing, disquieting thoughts, and it's almost like you don't mean to have them. They're just there. And I think there's a direct connection between verse 18 and verse 19. Isn't it true that all this can produce that? Filled with cares. The instability that we find in verse 18 results in these troubling thoughts, disturbing thoughts, swirling in his head. And so how was God a help in this situation? Verse 18. His steadfast love, there's the hesed, loyal covenant love, held me up. Again, that. Your, your foot slips on that slippery rock, right? And it's like someone reaching out and grabbing you and holding you up, keeping you from falling. It's the knowledge of God's faithfulness and loyalty that gives you stability when you think you're about to slip. Verse 19. Your consolations cheer my soul. Verse 19 is just one of my favorite verses. When the cares of my heart are many... Your consolations cheer my soul. If it's His faithfulness and love that gives stability, His consolations give joy. Now, what are His consolations? Promises. His promises, yeah. I think when we see the word consolations, I think it's describing, in many ways, the effect of His steadfast love on us. His consolations. His loyal love. The, the reality of His steadfast love brings stability. And the effect of His faithfulness and His steadfast love brings joy. Cheer, this word here, it means to gladden or delight. There's one other verse that uses the same Hebrew word that I find fascinating. Isaiah 66, 12-13. It says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. 
and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, and you shall be carried on her hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one, who comf- as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. Do you, know we see, do you know where we see that Hebrew word for cheer in that verse? Bounced upon her knees. Like rocked. Like a baby. The idea of cheer. I'll write that down. I heard some whisperings. Isaiah 66, 12 through 13. Is it possible to have that kind of cheer and joy when, not after, but when, the troubling thoughts, the cares of your heart are many? Absolutely is possible. This is the effect of God's word and God's grace on our lives. He gives stability. When my foot slips, he gives joy when my mind is filled with troubling, disturbing thoughts. Questions, comments? Before we move ahead. Verse 20. He goes back here to the injustice. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? This is a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. Can the wicked rulers be allied with God? Of course not. The evil kingdom of man cannot coexist with God's holy kingdom. Notice this phrase right here. What is that saying? They're making laws that oppress people. They're making wicked laws. They are framing injustice by statute. They are codifying wickedness. We know about that, don't we? We do. Just because something is legal does not make it moral. And if there are wicked rulers, you can expect wicked laws. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? And while they cannot ally themselves with God, what do they do? They band together against the life of the righteous. And they condemn the innocent to death. I mean, just to put it into modern day terms, are we seeing this? Abortion, right? Injustice is framed by statute, and the innocent are condemned to death. Is it right for us, even in that, in something like abortion that's going on in our country right now, to cry out, rise up, O God of vengeance? I think it is. Yes. Um, yeah. Just back to reading Daniel 4 to 6, and exactly that happened was Sapphire. Yeah. They um, banded together to make a law against Daniel <coughs> to try to sentence him to death. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's a. That, uh, exactly this. Exactly yeah. Wow, that's a, that's a fascinating connection. If you didn't hear, Susan mentioned the fact that in Daniel, the satraps. If that's how you pronounce it, right? Satraps, satraps, whatever they're called. They band together and they make a wicked law to trap Daniel 
uh, into you know, being punished for worshiping as God, right? And so you see this exact same thing. You know, guys, nothing is new under the sun. Wicked people are wicked people. And, uh, and the problems that we face have always been the problems. And yet God is ruler over all. And yet, even in this wicked system that the psalmist finds himself in, when the wicked rulers are framing injustice by statute, what is his first move? Is it taking vengeance in his own hands? It's not. It's trusting the God of vengeance. You know, there are things that we can look at in our country that should prompt us to cry out for the God of vengeance and justice, especially when the vulnerable are being attacked. And while we cannot take God's job of vengeance, and we should not, right? If we're going to go with the abortion illustration, you hear people of, you know, setting fire to abortion clinics and, and, and doing, doing violence. Is that trusting the God of vengeance, or is that saying vengeance is mine? It's the latter. But we can. We can trust the God of vengeance, and I think it's appropriate for us also to point out the wickedness. Isn't that exactly what the psalmist is doing by writing this psalm? By bringing light to it. I think the problem is often when we speak up about injustice, we don't always, it's not often accompanied by a trust and stability and joy that God provides. When we speak up, it's panic. <laughs> when we speak up, it's all anger, no trust. Or, yes, or we rant on Facebook, right. Crying for justice does not preclude us from resting in God's faithfulness. Just in the same way as resting in His faithfulness does not preclude us from crying for justice. We can do both. And so this is exactly what the psalmist does. He, he cries out for justice at the same time, while the cares of his heart are many and his foot feels like it's slipping, his consolations cheer his soul. He finds rest even in the oppression, even in the discipline that he is experiencing. And he trusts God to work. And then finally, verse 22 through 23, faith is expressed based on who God is. Verse 23 is who God is to me. Verse 24 is who God is to the wicked. When you trust in God, when you place your faith on Him, there is no greater stronghold. There is no stronger refuge. When you reject God and you act as if He does not exist, He will bring back on them their iniquity. He will wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. The protection of God is both past and present. He has become my stronghold. What about the justice of God? What tense is that in? It's future. Are we okay with that? Sometimes. Sometimes. Not as often as we should. You know, some people ask, how could, how could we believe in a doctrine like hell. And I think at least one of the reasons why we can point to is if there was not one, 
how much injustice and wickedness would be left completely unchecked? Would God still be a God of justice? Is it an uncomfortable doctrine? Is it something to squirm? we squirm at when we think about it? Absolutely. But if it were not for that, then justice would be limited to this life. And if justice is limited to this life, then God is not a God of justice. Because there are men and women who, who act wickedly their whole life and die in peace. God is a God of justice. Often His justice is future. And while we wait for His justice, what do we do? We trust in Him as, as our stronghold and as our refuge. And as we even saw in Romans 12, we're able to love and serve and overcome evil with good, even when we are mistreated. Because God handles the justice, the vengeance, and we can trust Him for that. What beautiful instruction we also receive when we're feeling unstable and filled with troubling thoughts. There's kind of two sides to this psalm, right? There's the, there's the trouble going on all around us, and then there's the trouble going on in your own head. And often they're connected, right? That's why it's really bad to watch the news every day, because <laughs> the trouble all around you becomes a bunch of trouble in your head. And, and, and whatever the troubling thoughts are, whatever the disturbing thoughts are that are plaguing you, did you find hope? Did you find renewed confidence in who God is? Do you see a step forward to find the healing and to find the rest, even in that instability and, and worry that we so often struggle with? God is faithful in our internal struggles, and God is perfect and just in all the world. No matter what is going on around us, we can trust Him for that. Thoughts, comments on anything? Yes, David. So this is meant to be sung, right? Yeah. I'm just wondering what the setting would be when this would be sung. Was it contemporary with this? Right? <laughs> <laughs> or was it an underground song? Or was it a protest song? <laughs> Pretty bold to be writing something that was going to be sung. Yes. These, this language doesn't often make its way into our hymnals, does it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No, that's that's later. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think there's there is there's room for us to sing songs like this. I really I really think so. And and, and the tone of this song is not one of hatred or revenge on our part, is it? It's it's rest. It's peace. Knowing that God is in control. And when, when we have that knowledge of God, is it okay for us to say, God of ju- justice, shine forth? I think so. I think it's also hoping for rest and peace for those who are one of justice. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, when, when, when you see that, like the widows and the sojourner and the fatherless afflicted, right? It's that desire to see, to see them delivered as well. Yeah. Anything else? Paul. Some of the music the choir has been learning reminds us that we are God's children mm-hmm. and that we can trust Him. That's exactly right. And, and that's why I really like this, this shift right here in verse 12 where he starts to frame even the 
oppression and injustice that he's seeing all around him, whether it's from a, a pagan nation or whatever, as God's sovereign hand, perhaps even bringing discipline on his people. And what does that tell us? That we haven't stopped being his children. And he still knows, he still hears, he still sees us. Um, and we can trust him for that. It's true. Yeah, Dennis. Yes. We are not pushing his timeline. He has his own timeline. That's exactly right, man. That's something we need to remind ourselves. Yes. That's exactly right. And that's where we fall so many times, is rushing his timeline or trying to take over his timeline. And, 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 and that's what you said. Staying in his word is exactly what he points to right here in verse 12. Blessed is a man whom you discipline and whom you teach out of your law. That's where the rest comes, right? Staying in his word, knowing that he has a timeline. And, and it's not yours, often. <laughs> Anything else? Yes? We do sing these songs. We sing it tonight. Right before the psalm that we study. We didn't call any rulers stupid. <laughs> didn't call any rulers stupid. I'm going to write, I'm gonna write my, my own song. Uh, good. Anything else? All right. Uh, uh, a, a psalm calling out the sin that we see while simultaneously... Trusting in God's sovereign goodness and His faithfulness. And we've got to keep both of those. So oftentimes when we call out sin, it's not from a place of trust. It's not from a place of peace. It's from a place of panic. And, and, and the psalm addresses that panic as something that God's consolation can actually help you in. So don't allow your panic to fuel the frustration that you see around you in this world. Um, but trust it to the God of vengeance to do what he knows is right, according, as Dennis pointed out, to his timetable. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for um, being a God who is over all. Lord, we pray that we would be confident in your character, confident in your promises. And uh, it, it seems like we keep on hitting the same theme week in and week out, Lord, that, that our limited perspective is so skewed. And, and having a divine perspective and your plan overall is so crucial to giving us the peace and the confidence that we need when things are going are, are chaotic. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that and that we'd be able to speak to that with confidence. That, that you who formed the ear, you hear. And it, you who formed the eye, you see. You see, you know. You hear all things. We can trust you for that. Lord, I pray that you give us a renewed sense of confidence. Lord, I pray if there's anyone who has that instability, those, those troubling thoughts that are plaguing their mind, even tonight, that they would look back to your steadfast love, to your consolations that can cheer their soul. In your son's name we pray. Amen.